Welcome to Looking Deeper, the podcast for the preaching ministry of Berean Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My name is Marcus Little, and I'm the senior pastor of that congregation. We are of the conviction that the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are enough to bring about the purposes of God for our lives and for the world. Because of that, we view preaching not as a one-way activity, but as a conversation. Please feel free to join us in that conversation by emailing me at marcus at bereangr.org or through our Facebook page, or better yet, by visiting us in person sometime for our Sunday services. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the corner of Coit and Sweet in Northeast Grand Rapids. For now, I trust that God's Spirit will speak to God's people through this part of God's Word. Well, last week we talked about how difficult it was for Jeremiah and for the people to see any hope for the future in light of their present circumstances. Today, we're going to look at the other side of that coin. So if it's difficult to look at the present and have hope for the future, when we look at the immediate future and see certain disaster on the horizon, an immediate calamity, how do we remain faithful in the present? I want to suggest to you that as the people of God, hope is our posture towards the future. Faith is our posture towards the present moment. Faith is the ability to do what we need to do because of the hope we have in the future. The two are related. And because our immediate future often looks bleak, we have this confidence in the ultimate future, in the ultimate ending of the story, but in the near term, and this is true for Jeremiah, 70 years and then restoration. But Jeremiah is dealing with the next 70 days or the next 70 minutes. And that is certain disaster. And today's passage helps us understand how to be faithful in the present moment. And as I thought about this this week, I couldn't help but think about Butch and Sundance. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, classic, iconic movie, one of my favorites. And there's a, just an iconic scene in that movie If you haven't seen it, I recommend the movie, uh, but here's how the scene unfolds. They are on the run, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, outlaws in the late 1800s, and they're on the run in the mountains from a posse, and they come to a gorge. They're at the top of this cliff overlooking this river of rapids down below, and they're pinned against this boulder, and so they're caught between this posse on the high ground above them, and there's this gorge down below. And they're figuring out how to position themselves best for the gunfight that will ensue, knowing that it will likely not end well for them. They're outnumbered, outpositioned. And finally, Butch says, we'll jump. We'll jump into the river. We'll get away from him that way. And Sundance says, no, I want to stay here and fight. I want to stay here and fight. And he's like, we're going to die. They're going to kill us. That's certain doom. They go back and forth. Finally, Sundance says, I can't swim. So he doesn't want to jump into the river because he can't swim. And Butch just starts laughing. So are you crazy? The fall will probably kill you. <laughs> Sundance was thinking too far into the future to be able to take the next step that was needed in the moment. A more recent film that may be more familiar to the younger people in the audience puts it this way. In Frozen 2, they say, do the next right thing. We oftentimes are so focused on what the ultimate outcome will be that we become paralyzed in the present moment to do what is necessary. And so if last week we see how Jeremiah receives 
a concrete hope for the future. This week we see what that looks like, how that hope animates faithfulness in the present. To jump off the cliff when we can't swim and to do the next right thing. So I invite you to turn to Jeremiah 38 and 39. Again, as I've been the last several weeks, I encourage you to get into this book on your own. We are just taking the the barest skim across the surface, really, of this longest book of Scripture. It's sandwiched in between two equally long books, Isaiah and Ezekiel. Uh, Right turn from Isaiah, left turn from Ezekiel, and you'll land in Jeremiah, and we're in chapter 38 and 39 this week. So chapter 38 and 39 begins, as most of the narratives in this book do, with the word that Jeremiah is bringing. And it is the same word that Jeremiah has been bringing throughout the 40 years of his ministry. We are at the end of Jeremiah's ministry here. When the book opened, talking about the length of his ministry, we're in the final year when we come to chapter 38. The Babylonians have surrounded the city And this is what Jeremiah says in that moment. Thus says Yahweh, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. The Chaldeans is just another word for the Babylonians. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Jeremiah says, the Chaldeans have come, sword, famine, and pestilence. We talked about it last week. This is the trifecta of warfare in the ancient world. To surround a city and cut it off by means of the sword was to produce a famine that would result in pestilence, and eventually the city would fall. You wouldn't have to fight so much to take it as simply walk past all of the dead and weakened skeletal bodies. And so Jeremiah says, that's what's coming for the city If you want to live, and this phrase, prize of war, if you would rather have your life as your own prize of war rather than to be a prize of war when the Babylonians capture the city, go out and surrender. We talked about this the last couple of weeks, that Jeremiah's now what is surrender, give up, stop fighting, go over to the Babylonians. The calamity that is coming is the result of human activity. Judah's failure to steward creation and the nation and the people according to God's will and ways results in a Babylonian invasion. Judah has committed itself to the same way of being that Babylon is in, a system that seeks its own greatness at the expense of others. And as we have seen, that cycle simply replays over and over and over again. And so God can say, the Babylonians are coming as a consequence, but they're doing exactly the same things that you did, and so someone will do it to them. And then that someone will have it done to them as well. That is the cycle that we are caught up in. But look at what God does. In every instance where human activity brings calamity and disaster and evil, God stands ready to stem the tide and rescue. This is the story of Noah's flood. Yes, a flood is coming, but what does God do? He gets Noah to build a boat big enough to save everybody. Human violence brings on the flood. God's activity is to save. That is the story throughout Scripture. 
Over and over again, human beings get themselves into mess after mess after mess that brings judgment and calamity and disaster, and God always says, and here is how I will get you out of it, if you will simply jump off the cliff. And that is what this verse says. There is a way out. Desert. Commit treason. Surrender. And you will have your life as a prize of war. We hear the echoes of Deuteronomy. I set before you this day life and death. Choose life, O Israel, that you might live. For why will you choose death? Well, this message, as we've talked about over and over, is not popular. Because there are vested interests in making sure that this war that they are fighting against the Babylonians ends in victory. And to do that, you need troops. And if the prophet of God is telling all of the troops to abandon their posts and go join the enemy, your war is not going to go very well. And so we come now to the officials. We're going to be looking at this story through the lens of each of the characters that show up. And the first characters that show up are the officials. These are simply royal characters, royal figures in King Zedekiah's court. And they play a prominent role throughout the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah addresses the king, the prophets, the priests, and the royal officials. There's numerous points in the book where those four are said to be his audience. They're the ones that are responsible for getting Judah into the mess that it is in. And here's the official's response. Then the officials said to the king, let this man be put to death. For he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city. Note this, Jeremiah's preaching has had results. We often talk about Jeremiah as this failed prophet. No, he's wildly successful. The ranks of the Judean army are depleted by all of the soldiers who have listened to Jeremiah's words and have gone over. And so the officials are saying, we're only down to the, the nubs. And, and if th those soldiers that are left leave, we will face a disaster. And the hands of all the people are weakened by speaking such words to them. They look at Jeremiah's words and they say, his words are bringing disaster on our city. His words are having their intended effect. The people are betraying their nation. The soldiers are derelict in their duty because the prophet of God told them to. He must die. But look at this last statement. This should leap off the page because of one of the verses in Jeremiah that is very well known to us. They say, for this man is not seeking the welfare of this city, but their harm. The word welfare there is the word shalom. It is the same word that Jeremiah used for the exiles in his letter to them to say, seek the welfare of the city to which I have called you. The officials accused Jeremiah of not seeking the shalom of the city. And what is clear from Jeremiah's perspective is, in fact, the officials have misunderstood the nature of shalom. They believe that shalom, that wholeness, that welfare will be found in continuing to fight a losing war against the Babylonians. Their stubborn refusal to surrender is, in fact, bringing about harm on the city. Their definition of shalom is warped, and so... They see Jeremiah as an agent of harm rather than shalom. And this is where it's important to remember that Jeremiah does not announce what he announces or give the counsel that he does from a distance of safety. He is in the city that will bear the result of his words. He has stayed in the city. He has not deserted to the Babylonians, even though he was accused of that in the passage we looked at last week. So the officials, they come to Zedekiah with this charge and this 
sentence. He must be put to death. We have to stop him. Incidentally, looking ahead to Jesus, I've made this observation a couple of times. Jeremiah's ministry is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus stands up on Palm Sunday in the temple and says, this city will be torn down stone by stone. And I tell you all, get out while you can. Do not linger in this city. It will fall. And the officials say he must die, for he has spoken against this place. And that is why Jesus gets crucified. All four gospels testify to it. There is something about this message that transcends Jeremiah's ministry. But this message comes to the king. And Zedekiah, remember, has a track record of both not listening and yet always asking Jeremiah to talk to him. Is there a word from the Lord? Okay, great, now I'm going to ignore it. Is there a word from the Lord? It's like he's going back to a slot machine over and over again. Maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this time triple cherries. Not that I know anything about that. I think triple cherries are good. If I'm wrong, there's that. But it doesn't work. He never gets the word that he wants. But he never is on board with punishing Jeremiah. But here, he says this, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. He says that to the officials. It is easy for us to paint the characters of Scripture as flat, as one-dimensional, as just all bad or all good. And we certainly know by now that none of them are all good. But it's easy to imagine that there are still villains that are just jet black in their natures. And that's horribly unfair. I want to remind us of some things because I have grown to have a degree of sympathy and compassion for Zedekiah. Zedekiah was nine years old when his dad left to go out and fight a battle against the Egyptians and was killed. And his older brother was placed on the throne only to be removed three months later by the same Egyptians his father had died fighting. And a second brother put in his place. And then that brother died and his son became king and was only king for three months when the Babylonians took Eliakim, which was Zedekiah's given name, and put him on the throne and called him Zedekiah. When you change someone's name, you say, I own you. 21 years of age, he's put on the throne by the most powerful empire the world had seen to that point and is told, I own you. He loses his father at nine to violence. He's watched three of his, two of his brothers and his nephew occupy the throne over the space of just 12 years. And in the 10 years that he has been king, he has been with his back against the wall. And he's got the prophet of God saying surrender, and he's got his officials saying we need to fight. So I'm not actually surprised that this is his response. The fatigue that he must feel, the trauma that he's carrying, and he just throws up his hands and says, fine, what's it matter? The barbarians are at the gate. Do what you want with Jeremiah. And so they do exactly that. They throw Jeremiah into a cistern. We're going to come back to Jeremiah later. But Zedekiah then seeks out an audience with Jeremiah. It is interesting that the officials don't do what they said they wanted to do and just outright kill him. They throw him in a cistern where he won't eat and he'll die of starvation slowly over time. It is a death sentence, just not an immediate one. But Zedekiah comes to Jeremiah and in verse 19, 
He says to Jeremiah, who has told him yet again, there is still hope. You can still save yourself. Leave the city. Surrender to the Babylonians. And Zedekiah says to him, I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans. All those people that you told, I'm afraid of them, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me. It's not an unreasonable fear. When nations are conquered by other nations, there is often recrimination between those who stood and fought and those who collaborated with the occupiers. It's not an unreasonable fear that Zedekiah has, but it is a fear that paralyzes him. And I want to suggest that Zedekiah at this point is entirely held captive to captivity. He is captive to fear of his officials, he is captive to fear of the Babylonians, and he is captive to fear of these Judeans who have joined the Babylonians outside the city. And he cannot see what the next right step is. And when Jeremiah tells him over and over again that the next right step is to jump off the cliff and not worry about the fact that you don't think you can swim, he just cannot bring himself to do it, no matter how Jeremiah pleads. And that has implications for the next character in this story, and that is the character of the city. We already saw that the officials referred to the welfare of the city, the city of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem representing a nation, an institution, and we've seen that the officials and the priests and the prophets and the king are the audience, and the officials are interested deeply in protecting the city. But they forget that the city is just a container that holds people. We've made the comparison between Jeremiah's and Jonah's stories. Jonah sees Nineveh as simply a symbol, a container that holds the Assyrian Empire and all of its wars of violence and torture and oppression against Jonah's people and many others. But God looks differently. When God looks at Nineveh, he sees a calamity that is coming upon it because of their ways and he sees 120,000 people in a whole mess of cows. And he says, shouldn't I have compassion on those people? The people and the city are not the same thing. There is a sense in which the officials are right. Jeremiah could care less about the welfare of the city if by the city we mean the institution, the establishment of Jerusalem. But he cares deeply for the people of the city. And so the final appeal that he makes to Zedekiah to get him to move on behalf of the people of the city, is he relates a vision that God gave him in verses 21 to 23 of chapter 38. He says, but if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which Yahweh has shown to me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon. So Jeremiah says, I had a vision and I saw all the women of the house of the king. Now, this would have been most likely not just Zedekiah's wives and daughters, this is also probably Josiah's wives, because it hasn't been that long, and the wives of the three kings that have preceded Zedekiah after Josiah was killed, and each of them had multiple wives. That's a topic for another day. All of these women with all of the children that they have produced, the royal households, are being taken out, Jeremiah says in his vision, and were saying, your trusted friends have deceived you, and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. Jeremiah puts on the lips of the women and children a rebuke to Zedekiah, 
saying, you have listened to these officials who have told you to fight, and we are paying the price. This is the truth throughout human history. Men start and fight wars, and women and children pay the price. And Jeremiah puts this scandalous reality in a vision to Zedekiah to say, if for no other reason than for your family, surrender. He says, all your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, and you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire. Jeremiah says over and over again, there are two ways this can go for the city. Either the city can be taken captive if you surrender, and the lives of the people of the city spared, and the city will not actually be destroyed entirely. But if you keep fighting, the city will be burned to the ground and people will perish. This reality that the people and the city are not the same thing was lived out in a much less serious way a week ago today when the Detroit Rams won the Super Bowl. (laughs) Of all the major markets in the country that tuned in to watch the Super Bowl, Los Angeles did not make the top 10, but Detroit was number two. Our team won the Super Bowl because it wasn't about the uniforms or the city. It was about Matthew Stafford. It was about the people that we were rooting for. I'm sorry if I've offended any Cincinnati fans. I don't think we have any Ohio people in here. But if we are, you're welcome. We include everyone here. The city is one thing. The people are another. We don't root for the uniform. We root for the people. And that's what Jeremiah is saying. Do it for the people. Well, Zedekiah, spoiler alert, refuses to listen. He will not surrender. Where does that leave Jeremiah deep in that cistern? Well, this is where the story gets good. The last character in this story is a guy by the name of Ebed-Melech. Now, I say that's his name. It's probably actually not his name. It's probably a title. A label would be a better term. It means servant of the king. He's an Ethiopian, otherwise known as a Cushite. We talked about this when we were doing our series in Isaiah, when we looked at Isaiah 53, because there was another Ethiopian character that shows up in Scripture, specifically an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, and Ebed-Melech is exactly that. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. Eunuchs were people who had been physically altered so that they were not a threat sexually to the wives of kings in the ancient world, and they would have custody of this household. It says that this individual, Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they'd put Jeremiah in prison. Once again, in scripture, it is the people who seem furthest from the center of God's work that often are closest to the center. He's not just a foreigner, he's a dark-skinned foreigner. And that was a deal then as it often has been a deal in the last 500 years In fact, if you recall, Aaron and Miriam complained against Moses because he had married an Ethiopian woman. He's a foreigner, and not just any foreigner, he's as foreign as they come, but he's also someone 
whose sexual category would have rendered him unable to participate in the religious life of the people of Israel. He is as far from what was considered the center of God's work as you could be. And he hears that Jeremiah has been thrown into a pit. And he goes to Zedekiah and he says, do you know what they've done? And now Zedekiah, who had once said, the king can do nothing, musters up the courage to do something. Well, to let someone else do something at least. And he says to Ebed-Melech, you take 30 men right now and you go get him out of that pit. And Ebed-Melech leads 30 men and they lower ropes down into the pit. Jeremiah had been lowered down with ropes, but Ebed-Melech, when he raises him up, takes an additional measure. The detail of this story is stunning. He lowers cloths down as well so that Jeremiah can put the cloths on the ropes under his arm so he doesn't get chafed by the ropes as they pull him out of the pit. Ebed-Melech doesn't know Jeremiah a thing, certainly doesn't need to risk his life as a foreigner, as an outsider, with the traitor that the officials want dead. That's exactly what he does. And that is the way of it throughout Scripture. It's the Samaritan that shows up and extends compassion and mercy. This is Jeremiah's version of the Good Samaritan. And so Ebed-Melech has put his life on the line and saved Jeremiah for the moment. God shows his faithfulness then to Jeremiah and to others. In verse 10 of chapter 39, the city has fallen and the Babylonians are sorting through what's left. And it says, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. One of the reasons that we are told that the exile happened, one of the things that Judah had done, or rather not done, is that they had failed to live out the laws of Jubilee, to redistribute land every 50 years to ensure that everyone had an inheritance and a stake. And it takes the captivity for the Babylonians to take care of that business. To say, we're going to give land to those who have had nothing. There shouldn't have been people in Israel that had nothing. In fact, if you go back and read chapter 34 of this book, you see how Zedekiah, again, for a moment, repented and did the jubilee thing and set people free and gave them land, and then immediately the officials said, whoa, no, this isn't going to fly. This is bad for the economy. And they walked that repentance back. They repented of their repentance. And Jeremiah said, exile is coming. What of Jeremiah? Well, they took Jeremiah from the court of the guard because he was still confined, just not in the cistern, Verse 14, and they entrusted him to get Eliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. That phrase, Jeremiah has spent the entirety of his career with home of Anathoth a distance away. He's been confined in Jerusalem all through this siege, and now he gets to come home, and he lived among the people. There's a beauty to that statement of God restoring Jeremiah to a place where he could say, I am home. I belong. I am among my people. Now, stay tuned, because we have to finish his story next week. He doesn't stay home for long. But the Babylonians, not surprisingly, he's been great for them. They're happy to let him go home. And what of Ebed-Melech? Similar to Baruch, a couple of weeks ago, God says, Jeremiah, I want you to say something to Ebed-Melech. And this is what he says in verse 18, the last verse of the chapter. I will surely save you, Ebed-Melech, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war because you have put your trust in me, declares Yahweh. God is faithful 
in the midst of certain calamity to rescue everyone who wants it. So now what? What do we do with this? I have three things for us to take away from this. As we look at a near future that may feel hopeless, we must cling to the ultimate hope of God's plan for our world and God's people. But in this moment, the first thing that I will say to us from this passage is that faithfulness is always an option. It stands out to me that up until the very moment the Babylonians breach the walls and burn the temple, that Zedekiah has a live option to get out. Faithfulness is always an option. Ebed-Melech, when it didn't seem like it would make a bit of difference or that it would matter or that it would be safe, faithfulness was an option, and he took it. Jeremiah exhibits this over and over and over again, choosing faithfulness at every step. Faithfulness is always an option, and it is always better. Faithfulness is always an option, and it is always better. The second thing is that faithfulness is in the present. Faithfulness is not a matter of what I will do next week or next year or in 10 years. Faithfulness is a matter of what I will do right now. What is right in front of me? What is the present reality and how do I respond faithfully to God's purposes and ways? Ebed-Melech, here's what they did to Jeremiah and takes action. Jeremiah, when he receives the word of the Lord or is asked by Zedekiah what the word of the Lord is, is faithful to speak truth. Zedekiah is presented with real-time, present-moment options. Jeremiah is not asking him to plan something for a year from now. He's asking him today, surrender, jump off the cliff. Faithfulness is in the present. And as I said at the start, it is easy to get paralyzed by fear of the future, by the things that paralyzed Zedekiah, fear of what might happen. And what this story shows is that God is faithful to rescue and redeem when we trust in him. What he said to Ebed-Melech, because you have trusted in me, you receive your life as a prize of war. The final thing is that your faithfulness matters. Everyone's faithfulness is essential. Ebed-Melech, the least likely person to have a role in God's redemptive work and plan, was faithful, and his faithfulness mattered. And it is your faithfulness, and your faithfulness is not everyone else's faithfulness. I mentioned the books that Jeremiah is sandwiched between, Isaiah and Ezekiel. Ezekiel and Jeremiah were contemporaries. They were alive at the same time. And Daniel, the book that follows Ezekiel, was alive at this time. They all lived through these events, but their experiences were very different. Jeremiah's faithfulness was to stay among the people in Jerusalem, but that wasn't everyone's faithfulness. Because remember, Jeremiah was sending people deserting to the Babylonians right and left, but he didn't. He understood what his faithfulness, what his call from God was. Ezekiel was taken into exile by the Babylonians at the beginning of Zedekiah's reign. And he found himself among the exiles in one of the colonies the Babylonians set up by the river Kibar. And that was where he needed to be faithful to encourage that community of exiles. Daniel, who was also taken, 
found himself in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, and his faithfulness was to bear witness to the king about God's work and God's ways as a member of the Babylonian establishment. Three different faithfulnesses. Your faithfulness is not someone else's. Your next right thing is not the same next right thing as someone else's, but it is essential and it matters and God will honor our steps if we trust in him. Faithfulness is in the present. Your faithfulness matters and it is always an option. So as we continue in worship, we're going to sing a song that we've sung before, God of this city. And the worship team's going to come and lead us in that. But I want to remind us that just as Jeremiah distinguished between the city and the people, we have a city that is heavenly. The cities we inhabit are not the cities that define us. Our faithfulness is to the city that we await from heaven. Would you pray with me as we continue in worship? God, we thank you for your faithfulness that assures us that we have a hope that allows us to live faithfully in the present moment. We ask that you would show us clearly what faithfulness looks like for us and that we would have courage to live it out. And it's because of Jesus, our faithful and merciful high priest, that we ask it. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. I pray you were blessed by what you heard. We hope you'll join us again next week, whether on this podcast, via our live stream, or in person. Until then, watch for our bonus episodes with reflections on this message and a preview of next week's message that drop throughout the week. Until then, may the God who loves us beyond our ability to think or imagine bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, look upon you with favor, and give you